0: Um, what an amazing privilege that is, and what an amazing experience that is to have God speak to us through his word. And so Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at 27 to 38, and I'm going to read, um, and as I read, this is what normally happens. Every time um, I get to experience the corporate reading of scripture... I easily get distracted. <laughs> um, I start off well, and I'm following along. And before you know it, I start thinking about the soccer scores, or I start thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch, and I start thinking about my outfit, and is it comfortable, and does, do people like my green camo style blazer and um, I just my mind wanders okay and it was just doing that now Um, and so let me encourage you as we read it now make sure you're intentional about focusing on every word every sentence every paragraph um, every verse yeah let's read Mark chapter 8 from verse 27 And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing. And as we have been studying and reflecting on your life through Mark. We have seen and heard so many things. Um, some of what we've seen and heard about have blown our minds. Um, some of the things we've seen and heard have been comforting for us. And some of the things have been challenging. And this morning, as we listen to your words that you spoke many thousands of years ago, help us to recognize that those words were not just for your original disciples, but they're for us, your modern-day disciples. And even though they're challenging, may we receive them knowing that you are gracious and it's the best thing for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As some of you know, uh, my wife and I have got three kids, and if you're a parent in here, several parents, I saw several moms being celebrated. Their flowers are amazing, actually. Aren't they lovely? But um, if you're a parent in here, you've probably had this experience, and that is taking one of your kids... Um, to the doctors to get an injection or to have something, some type of treatment or medication um, they're uncomfortable with. And that experience is not only excruciating and challenging and difficult for the kid, it's also challenging for us because I hated Seeing some of our kids have to go through um, the discomfort of some of the medical treatments that we had them. Um, they're crying, they're shouting, and at times I was um, asked by the doctor to actually hold them down, right? And that is, I know, I know there's some parents in here, it's a horrible thing when you're holding them down and they're. Actually, my son Jesse was so strong when he was young. It was like ridiculous how strong he was. And I'm trying to hold him down, and I'm trying to be a big man, grown dad, trying to hold him. I'm like, this is quite difficult. This is hard. Uh, (laughs) But um, you know that experience. It's challenging, and it's difficult. But we do it. We go through it because we know it's good for them. And we know... That enduring the pain, enduring something difficult, will bring about beneficial results for them. And in this passage for this morning, Jesus is going to speak some challenging and difficult words. Um, Jesus has said some very radical and challenging things, but this morning we come to... I would say um, one of the most challenging um, teachings by Jesus because the reason why it's challenging is because it goes against everything that we want, that we desire. Um, And so put your seatbelts on, hold the hand of someone next to you um, because Jesus is going to say things that, may be difficult for us to hear, but it's so good for us to hear. After restoring the sight of a blind man in Bethsaida, Jesus and his disciples um, travel from there to Caesarea Philippi. Um, Caesarea Philippi was located north of Bethsaida, where they currently are, and it was a city known for pagan worship. And what that means is, if you were to get into a time machine, right, and travel back in time to Caesarea Philippi, you would see several temples that were built um, and constructed for pagan gods, Okay, and so this is kind of what's going on, right? And you guys might say, hey, like in our day and age, we don't really have cities that are dedicated to pagan gods, as in statues that people worship. No, we don't have that, but what we do is that every city has an idol they worship. Right? So, for example, um, Los Angeles. What is Los Angeles known for? Los Angeles is known for the movie industry. And so, people there right, f- go there so that they can become famous and actually become, be in a film. And so, Los Angeles, what people are worshipping in that city is success and fame. Okay, I'm from London. If you go to London, London's a bustling, crazy, busy city, and London is a city that I would say idolizes success and money. Right? It's a prosperous city. We also idolize the Queen, right, and the royal family. We love them. Um, but again, every city has something they worship. Um, if you go to the south, they worship sweet iced tea, right? <laughs> or something like that, right, or something, no, 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 I'm sorry, bad information, anyway, moving on, (laughs) and so um, Jesus and his disciples are heading to Caesarea Philippi, um, pagan worshipping city, and it's on their way to this city that Jesus engages in conversation with his disciples about his true identity. Um, In verse 27, Jesus says to them, Who do people say that I am? Guys, who do people say that I am? And so after thinking about it for a while, and I'm sure possibly discussing it amongst themselves, Jesus' disciples share with him what they've been hearing as far as Jesus' identity is concerned. Verse 28 gives us their response. They say, John the Baptist, okay? And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And so... They're just letting Jesus know what the general consensus is as far as his identity is concerned. And some of them think he's John the Baptist because you guys know several chapters back, John the Baptist got killed, and some people believe Jesus, is, you know, John the Baptist has come back, right, in the form of Jesus. Some people think he's Elijah. If we had time, we would go there, but the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, in the last, pa- in the last chapter and the last um, paragraph of that, the book of Malap- Malachi talks about Elijah returning. And so people, a lot of the Jews who knew the Hebrew scriptures, known to us as the Old Testament, um, a lot of them thought that Jesus was Elijah, and they also thought he was one of the prophets, just one of many prophets, one of the major prophets maybe, like Jeremiah or Isaiah. We don't know, but that was the general public opinion as to who Jesus was. That was the popular opinion back then in Jesus' day. And so for us, if we were to ask the same question today— I wonder what people would say. Who would your co-workers say Jesus is? If you're into fitness and you go to the gym a lot, the people you work out with, if you were to ask them, who is Jesus? I wonder what they would say. If you were to ask the, you know, the regulars in your favorite coffee shop who Jesus is, Again, I wonder what they would say if we were all to suddenly have an amazing idea or leave this building and go to downtown PB and start asking just random people who Jesus was. I wonder what they would say. I did something similar. This week, I asked several people I came across, who they believe Jesus is, and the results are fascinating, okay? Some said he was simply a historical figure, a guy in the past who made history, okay? That's kind of a common notion of who Jesus is. Others said Jesus was that person from the Bible Christians talk about a lot. (laughs) And some were adamant that Jesus was a good guy, A moral teacher who was wise and said some awesome, tweetable things. Amos, some of you know Amos is one of our members of our church, and most of you may not know this, but he was born in a Muslim country. And he was raised Muslim. And in his late teenage, early 20s, God radically saved Amos. And so I was spending some time with Amos this week, and I asked him the question. And I said, hey, growing up in a Muslim country, right, growing up in a Muslim country, um, what was the general perspective of who Jesus is? And he said to me, "Um, uh, most of them believe Jesus is one of the great Prophets. That is it. Nothing more or nothing less. Just a great profit. These are some of the views that we get in our culture as to who Jesus is. Some people, um, like my pastor Jeremy Treat in L.A. would say, some people would say Jesus is this heavenly custodian who um, we call on to clean up our mess, or Jesus is our spiritual coach. Some people view Jesus as a spiritual coach, and what he does is he exists to pat us on the back and cheer us on and help us defeat our spiritual opponents, right? That is kind of the perspectives of Jesus. Because of Jesus' popularity, most people have an opinion about him. And that's exactly what the disciples are revealing to Jesus and to us. And so after hearing their thoughts, Jesus then asks the same question, but this time he gets personal. He goes from, what's everybody saying about me to who do you think that I am? verse 29. But who do you say that I am? Um, So here, Jesus, what is happening is he goes from popular opinions to personal revelation. And this was the central question. Listen to me, guys. This was the central question to Jesus' original disciples. And to this day, believe it or not, Jesus is posing that same question to us, his modern-day disciples. And he's more interested in your own personal revelation that he's revealed about himself to you rather than the opinions of others. And it's my duty as a pastor to restate that same question to you this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? What's your personal opinion of Jesus? And the related question to that is this. What's your opinion of Jesus based on? Is it based on your own personal revelation through your relationship with Jesus and God's word? Or is it based on the opinion of others? Who do you think Jesus is? This question needs to be settled in your heart and in your mind because it could be a matter of life and death. And so after taking a moment to reflect on Jesus' question, Peter breaks the silence and like the kid in the class who raises your hand quickly to answer the question, Peter declares, Jesus, you are the Christ. This moment right here is a watershed moment. We've read it. Most of us are Christians, and we've read this a lot of times. But again, if we were to get into a time machine and go back many years to this particular location, it would blow our minds. And this is why. Because By referring to Jesus as the Christ, Peter was making a claim that would have left every Jewish citizen stunned and utterly astonished. Eyes would have widened, jaws would have dropped. And why was Peter's claim such a big deal? Peter's answer, You are the Christ, was the same as saying, You are the Messiah. And this is because Christ is not a name, okay? Never think Jesus was, Christ was his surname. It was a title. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And in Jesus' times... The Jews were sick and tired of being under Roman oppression and longed to be freed and delivered from the hated Romans who had occupied their country. And their hope for freedom was a person the Old Testament described as the Messiah. The Messiah was viewed by Jews as this kingly figure, this conquering hero, military commander, and they were eagerly anticipating his arrival so that he could crash the enemy of Rome and restore political power back to Israel. And so you can understand how such a claim would have sent shockwaves Throughout the Jewish world, it would have. It was huge what he said. And so, following Peter's confession, the disciples had come to understand that Jesus, their rabbi, this Jesus who grew up in Nazareth was the long-awaited promised Messiah the Hebrew scriptures had been talking much about. And although this understanding was a huge moment for them, their understanding was limited. It wasn't complete. It was half full. And although they see who Jesus is... They don't yet see why he has come or what it means to follow him. They're only seeing part of the picture. And so, soon after, um, as, soon, as soon as the identity of Jesus is established, the focus turns from who he is to what his ultimate mission and purpose is. Look at verse 31. He, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. With these words, Jesus reveals to his disciples something we're all familiar with, right? His suffering, his death, and his resurrection. But to them, back then, These words from the lips of Jesus would have been extremely shocking to them. Think about the most absurd, most shocking announcement ever. I was trying to think about it, and I was like, it's like LeBron James, right? Saying one day, and suddenly having a news press conference, right? And coming out and saying, I'm not going to play for the Lakers anymore. I'm going to go back to my high school team and play for them. Right? Just like one of those news. I don't know. Just have a think about the most mind-blowing, the most shocking, and the most unexpected news or announcement you've ever heard. That was what it was like for them to hear Jesus say that the Messiah, the long-awaited king and conqueror, would eventually suffer. And would be killed. It would have been a big shock because it went against everything they believed. They believed the Messiah, um, this military commander, would start a revolution and deliver Israel from oppression. And so the idea of the Messiah having to endure suffering, be rejected by the religious authorities and be killed was inconceivable. Just didn't make sense to them. Didn't make sense that the Messiah this son of God this anointed one the Christ would endure such hostility and because this is, this doesn't make sense what happens in verse 32 right Peter the spokesperson for the disciples rises up grabs Jesus by the arm took him to the side and began to rebuke him and the word used for rebuke here is interesting right it's the same word Jesus has used in the past to rebuke demons. Peter's actions towards Jesus was not just this, Hey, Rabbi, can you like, just come here for a little bit and we need to just talk about what you just said? No, it was a harsh and really disrespectful disagreement and objection to what Jesus had just about, um, revealed about his future. In Peter's mind, he's thinking Jesus has got it all wrong. He genuinely believes he's right and Jesus is wrong. And so he aggressively rebukes Jesus. And the question is, how does Jesus respond to this? And my question is, we've read this and we're familiar with it. I was thinking to myself, if I'd never read this before, or I was watching it in a movie, and right, and like, you know, after Peter would have rebuked him you know, the, the, the credits came on and I had to wait next week for what would happen. I'd be thinking to myself, what, what, ha- what would happen? What do you think Jesus' reaction should have been if you didn't know the story? Well, we know, verse 33, let's read it. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, "'Get behind me, Satan.' For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so in saying to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, Jesus is essentially telling him, get out of my sight, Satan. And the reason Peter is under the influence of Satan is because, read it again, he's not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In trying to prevent Jesus from going through suffering, rejection, and death, Peter was siding with Satan and not with God. In other words, Peter is seeing things from a worldly perspective. He really is from a worldly perspective. um, Peter could never imagine the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, suffering and dying. It's crazy. And do you know what's interesting about all of this? Jesus literally said, right, the Son of God, the Messiah, is going to suffer, is going to die, and is going to rise again. Peter gets offended and rebukes Jesus. I'm thinking he missed the whole, the last part of the whole rising again. It's there. That's what Jesus said, right? Right? I'm going to rise again, but it's so interesting. He misses that all-important resurrection part because if he would have not focused on the negative but saw that Jesus would actually conquer the grave, I wonder what his response would have been. And so, isn't that like us? Don't we tend to do that? Don't we tend to always look at, the negatives, and forget the many good things God has done. We do that a lot. Like, God, oh my gosh, I'm in this situation again, and I just can't see a way out. You know, and just God's provided church community. God's provided Bibles in abundance. God's provided so much for us and we still choose to always focus on what we don't have or, or the negative rather than the many things God has done. So interesting. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus is not an earthly king bringing God's kingdom through force and aggression. But Jesus is God's king bringing about God's kingdom through sacrificial love. And this is the countercultural message Jesus wants his disciples, past, present, and future, to understand. Jesus, listen to me, is the Messiah who was crucified in order to save his people. And so, as you think about the cross, as we sing about Jesus and his death, as we read about it, are we thankful to Jesus for dying to pay for our sin so that, we don't have to pay for it ourselves. Are you amazed that God the creator gave his life to rescue you from the terrible consequences of your rebellion against him? Or to you, has the cross, has the cross, Jesus' crucifixion, has it simply become a symbol that we hang on around our necks that we tattoo on our bodies that we draw and get creative with what is the cross to you every time you think about see the cross are you thankful And amazed that God the creator gave his life to rescue you from the terrible consequences of your rebellion against him. When you look at the cross, do you remember and recognize that because of Jesus' death, I am forgiven and I am loved by God, the creator of the universe? Jesus is doesn't want them to know about his identity and his ultimate mission, but he wants them to also know what it will mean to be his followers and why they should want to be his followers. And the central message Jesus wants to um, hear and understand, and for them to understand, is that to follow Jesus is to go the way of the cross. Let's look at verse 34, everyone. Verse 34. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. And just to be clear, Jesus' identity has been revealed. His mission has been revealed. Now he's transitioning to communicating to them what it means to be, truly be his followers. Okay? Okay? This is what's happening. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This statement has to be one of Jesus' most radical. To us, it's not as hard-hitting as it was to them in the first century. And this is because in the first century, the cross, like the electric chair of our day, was a form of execution designed for physical pain and social shame. As criminals were led to their deaths by crucifixions, they were forced to carry The crossbeam. It was heavy, it had a lot of splinters on it, it was burdensome, and it was designed to be a public spectacle. It was designed to make death by crucifixion a shameful execution. Cicero, who is a Roman philosopher and considered one of Rome's greatest orators, described crucifixion as this. As a cruel, disgusting penalty, the worst of extreme tortures inflicted on slaves, and something to be dreaded. And so, for Jesus to say to his disciples then, and he's saying it to us now, his modern day disciples, that we must deny ourselves and carry our cross. And when we do that is when we're truly, truly His disciples was a huge statement. Not just for them, but for us. What Jesus is saying is this. If you are truly my disciples, if you are truly someone who I... identifies with me, then your life shouldn't be lived for you, but your life should be lived for me. Jesus is saying, I need to be your number one. Jesus expects us to choose the way he has chosen, not the way we would choose for ourselves. He expects us to resist living for ourselves and continue by his grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, continue to live for him. Denying yourself, as this is Jesus is calling us to do means putting your desires for comfort and acceptance in this world to one side so that it doesn't get in the way of you following Jesus. And if you're not saved, being saved. This is an invitation to die so that you may Live. To truly follow Jesus means that you are willing to give up anything and everyone for him. You are willing to give up your dreams, your career goals, your relationships, your habits, your weekly schedule, for him. And let me say this: that this doesn't mean you kind of disconnect and just disappear, just give up everything. I'm not saying that. But what it means is that you are willing to give up everything for Jesus so that he can transform and repurpose all that you have for his glorious purposes. This is what is required of a Jesus follower. Jesus doesn't want half-hearted, kind of I'm in and I'm out followers. What this is saying, Jesus is saying this, if you are going to follow me, you must deny your right to run your own life. And just as this world rejects me, So it will reject you because you follow me. I'm not saying that we should be out there being horrible and miserable to everyone. I'm not just saying that. But what Jesus is saying here is that if we truly, truly dedicate our whole life to following him. Some of the people we love and respect. Will possibly reject us. Jesus doesn't stop here. He explains further what it means to truly live for him by using a paradox. Okay, look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For whoever would save his life. Jesus is saying if you're trying to save your life, if you're trying to um, seek approval from this world uh, and are horrified at the thought of being rejected by it, then you will save your life now but lose it eternally forever. But if you see the treasure that is in Jesus and choose to follow him, then even though the world may mock you and reject you now, your life will be saved eternally. I love what Jim Elliott said. He's a um, guy that was a really prominent missionary. He said this, A man is no fool who will give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a lot here. This whole idea, denying ourselves and fully living for Jesus. It's a lot here. Verse 36, it says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is talking about here is a lot of the time we focus on the externals but who we truly are are, are are our souls. Our souls. And our souls cannot be picked up by x-rays or we cannot touch them. But they are the, uh, the, 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 the parts or the elements of who we are that last throughout eternity. And so it's same right here that what's the point? What's the point of living our lives for the here and now, in a way that causes us to forfeit our souls. For well, what can a man give in return for his soul? So much here. Um, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this, I'll I, 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 adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels like the whole idea of are we living for christ if we're living for christ now we will be unashamed but if we're not living for christ if we're saying yes jesus i love you and i'm all about you but our lives do not reflect what we profess we're being ashamed ashamed our lives need to reflect who we say we are. In 1,000 um, 186 years after the death of Emperor Charlemagne, officials of the Emperor Otto reopened Charlemagne's tomb. Before them was an extraordinary sight. In the midst of all the treasure buried with him, the gold, the jewels, the priceless treasure, there was the skeleton of Charlemagne himself, still seated on his throne, still wearing his crown. Right? And this is, that was an amazing sight. But what was even more amazing is that on his lap, there lay a Bible, and a bony finger rested on one of the verses we've looked at this morning, which is Mark chapter 8, verse. 36, which reads, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What good is it? What good is it for us to gain the whole world and lose our soul? All the power, prestige, and influence the world has to offer counts for nothing if our soul is not secure in Christ. Our souls are restless. They really are. We seek to find rest in created things rather than the creator God. And the more we seek to find rest in those things, we will remain restless and our souls will remain restless until we find our rest in Jesus. Jesus has been very clear about the cost of following him. His original disciples needed to know what it would mean, and so do we. This passage makes it clear that following Jesus is the best decision anyone can make. It's the best decision in anyone. Your your soul is secure from now on until eternity. And right now in this life, you get to experience Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy and his goodness. And also, he provides you with his Holy Spirit to empower you to live the life he's called you to live. He really does do that. Jesus is not this historical figure in history somewhere. No, he's not. He's alive and well, right? And he is involved in every one of our lives. Absolutely involved in every one of our lives now. Living for Jesus, deciding to follow Jesus, best decision you can ever make. But, a British theologian and historian N.T. Wright is wise in reminding us that Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk. Neil Postman, in his book, Musing Ourselves to Death, says this, I believe I'm not mistaken In saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion, when it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. A true follower of Jesus is the person who clearly sees what it will cost to follow him. But even though it's costly, To follow Jesus, even though there's a price to pay, a true follower of Jesus does it joyfully, knowing that Jesus is infinitely worth more than we could ever give him because he's given us everything. And if he's given us his life so we may have life, why don't we give all of our lives to him? In Mark We discovered afresh the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. We so also clearly heard Jesus explain his mission, his suffering, his rejection, his death, and how he rose again. And then he called us to follow him by denying ourselves and taking up our cross. And so my question to you this morning is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ God's only chosen king, are you forever grateful for his life, death, and resurrection? And are you willing to respond to his call to sacrificially live for him? Pray with me.